Today on 1196, we chop it up with the executive creative director from Vice, Amel Monsoor, and Montreal's artful vandal, the one and only Miss Me. Be the people. From West Queen West in downtown Toronto, this is 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. My father told me when I was a boy that whenever you're in a room with someone who has more experience than you, shut up and listen. <laughs> you don't have to agree, but you damn well better listen because you're bound to learn something. Powerful words that stuck with me. This lesson from my father is one that I've used time and time again as I've traveled the world. And I've found even in the most intense situations, literally life and death moments, when you're in someone else's zone, you listen first. By listening, I've been able to break through social and political barriers and truly learn about culture, community, and deep connection. As men, and I'm talking about myself as much as anyone else, we have this incredibly bad habit of not listening when it comes to women. Over the last year at Deus, I realized I was doing this and and it quickly became clear how detrimental it was to the creative process and, and team building. I'm grateful for all the powerful women who've checked me on this. It's an intentional and constant practice that takes an open heart and mind. And I've noticed how much this shift, this simple shift of listening more has benefited me in all my communication. In the world of art and media, we're so tied up in mixed up ideas about gender, race, sexuality, and class. That being said, we're also in this golden age where the world we watch and listen to is beginning to look more and more like the actual world we live in. I mean, we're seeing the first gay couples on TV sitcoms, first black director to win an Oscar, first transgendered character on a major series. The list goes on. Yeah, we've come a long way. And of course, we have a long way to go. If you want to be part of the progress we're making, you better check yourself. Regardless of how many ideas you have or how big your list of accomplishments, especially us men here, sometimes the greatest contribution you can make in the room is to shut up and listen. Coming up on 1196, we listen to two women that are leaders in this work. Amel Mansour is the executive creative director of Vice. We chopped it up about her role, broadly, Islamophobia, and her hometown of Chicago. And later on in the show, we welcome Montreal-based artist Miss Me, a.k.a. the Artful Vandal, to the 1196 studios, where we talked about everything from Cleopatra to gender roles and feminism. But first, you might have caught Rihanna's cover of this song on her 2016 album, Anti. But a year before, the Australian group Tame Impala dropped this on their third album entitled Currents. Keeping with the theme of trying to do things a bit differently, this is a dope song called New Person, Same Old Mistakes. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. Like a brand new person, 
You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Amel Mansour is the executive creative director at Vice, where she plays a role in shaping everything from channel identity and content development to branded campaigns. She's also the creative director of Broadly, Vice's women's interest channel, which she helped launch in August 2015. In her work, Amel brings the worlds of fashion, music, and politics together through the power of storytelling, a craft she sharpened during her time working with the Al Jazeera News Network. On top of all that, Amel held a role that you just can't apply for. I suppose it has to be given to you. She was Prince's creative director. Yeah, Prince, the purple guy, who she describes as a mentor. What an experience. Amel sat down with me here at 1196 for a rare interview. My name is Amel Mansour, and I am part of the Jali clan <laughs> from East Africa, Sudan. Nice. Um, and that's the clan that actually conquered the colonialists and gave them their, their flag back. So I always think of myself that way. For those of us who are still trying to remember their history lessons, who did okay, they, so, they give the flag back to? Well, they were colonized a couple times, like right. many resourceful places around the world. <laughs> but um, it was from the Brits. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it wasn't all shade, right? They're like, no, nah, we're good. Mm. We'll keep the architecture and infrastructure. Right. Tea time. Fine. You know, the cadence to like work and all of that. But we're good. We could do this on our own. And did you, but you grew up in America? Yeah, I was born there um, in a rural area that's like mostly agricultural. It was agricultural. And then my dad was here in the U.S. just like a month in advance of when my mom um, had me in the 80s, early 80s. He was here for law school. Mm. And his intention was, I'm coming to the U.S. to get what I need to get, which is education. And then I'm out. There was a coup. So it wasn't really ideal for him to go back. But he operated in a way that was temporary. So he like popped off on people all the time. And (laughs) when the landlord's like, yo, your wife's mad cute. He's like, no, thanks. Yeah, about that. So then he started to put in roots after. Right. And um, where was that? And that was in Philly. Okay. Yeah, we lived in North Philly. So you're a Philly girl. I'm not a John really. Only because you can claim a place if you went to high school there. Is that how it works? That's how I feel because that's when you're going through your whole, in your adolescence is where you discover places. Yeah, Yeah, right? And And so I didn't really bloom there, but I do have an affinity. And I wasn't driving there. I wasn't like sneaking out. I wasn't hanging out. But I go back to Philly now with like a nostalgia and Mm. I think it's a dope city now. Mm. Um, But at the time, I don't think it was a place that they wanted to stay. So my parents stayed there for, I don't know, like 12 years. And then we moved to Chicago. And so my siblings who are younger than me were all raised in Chicago. So you're kind of more Chicago if you have to really break it down. You're going to say like- Kind of. It's like by way of, by way of, by way of. Yeah, like three by ways. Yeah. So when I think about the work that you do now, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's it's an executive creative director position at Vice and you run broadly. Am I right? Well, I work across all of the channels now. Across all the channels Yeah. I spend a lot of time with Broadly, so it's basically my- Yeah, that was your baby, right? Yeah. But it was because it was identity focused, which is why I was so invested in it. And the mission was clear. Women should be able to talk about their bodies without it being um, branded as salacious. Women should be able to talk about reproductive health without it being- sexual activity. It's all of these things. And and it was interesting because people were so excited about participating. And then as soon as 
the content came out, they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't it's know. It's a bit much. Why is she talking about nipples? Right. Yeah. And like we're only like, supposed to look at them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> it's so crazy, especially in the, I don't know if it's the same way in Canada, but um, the over-sexualizing of the female body. Absolutely. And the entitlement that other people have to it. So that was a really amazing project. But now I sit across all the channels. Um, I, I ladder into a team, a great team at Viceland too, which is a TV right. channel. Of course. Yeah. I think I make a lot of people uncomfortable, including myself. Mm. Um, because I don't know if I'm up for the task, mm. really. It's very daunting, but I also have incredible support internally where yeah. I am. And so the team I work with day to day are like really self-aware mm. and have an empathy gene, which I think is important. And they're all people that work in media and are ambassadors of this brand mm. and are on board, I think, with the mission. Vice did a, a really cool thing in kind of retrofitting the brand into a platform that people thought was dying. But I think people will watch TV if it's good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think when people are addressing Islamophobia issues... They don't necessarily think about like fashion, sports, yeah. lifestyle, culture, but perhaps they really should. Why do you use that as your approach as opposed to maybe something that's more academic or political? Pop culture is where it is. I haven't been able to talk to you about it before, but what I tell everyone is look at how marriage equality happened. Marriage equality happened with a long sustained battle, mm. long and sustained and people out in the streets, people sacrificing their lives and, um, it happened through culture. Mm. It happened through people feeling okay with Ellen, feeling okay with Modern Family, and saying, okay, maybe I won't use that slur. Right. Or maybe I'm not going to write my senator about two men getting married or two right. women getting married or being opposed to that. And that's why it's important for all of these things to kind of proliferate in pop culture, mm. other spaces, food. Mm -hmm. I mean, people eat food that comes from Islamic traditions. And the best protest sign so far was uh, we gave you hummus, show some respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I it was so out. good. Yeah, it was so good. The, but, the one from Mexico is we gave you guacamole. Right. And some respect. <laughs> so you said that my lens will always be from the lens of an outsider. What do you feel your responsibility is as that outsider now? It's a little bit of an anarchist statement in the sense that I see it through the glass. I was never an insider in the construct of what is considered to be an insider in my specific culture and environment in the U.S. You know, just through growing up, I was, you know, this whole myriad of things that were always other. But I'm really grateful for it. I don't want that being on the outside as being having imposter syndrome. Never. I never feel like I'm not supposed to be in a specific space, which is asked Powerful. of me all the time. The only reason I would ever feel any type of discomfort about being in a space is because of everyone else feeling uncomfortable about me being in that space. But I have taken a new approach as I mature in that I don't find it necessary to apologize for existing or having a point of view, but it is important in how you serve the dish. Really well said. I mean, it, 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 it yeah. <laughs> Will you help us understand what a creative director means? I even had the title at one point and yeah. I wasn't sure. Have you seen the, the meme? No. Is that, Oprah is telling everyone, you're a creative director, you're a creative director, you're <laughs> see, a creative director. See, but here's the thing is, I, I think I understand it, but I'm really interested to know with someone of your talent, of your experience, just help us understand what that actually means for you. I know. It's really ambiguous. 
so there's this really long string and I toss it down the hallway and then all of the components can sit on top of that string or that string has to run through them, but it needs to be consistent. It's making sure that everything collectively can sit together and look like they came from the same family. And so that is about the way we express ourselves visually. That's the way that we, the type of people we put on camera. It's mm. the the lens in which, or filter that we put on a story. Right. It's a type of story. There's a very, it's kind of like, just like licking your finger and putting it there. Be like, is that vice? It's not vice. The nice thing is, is that vice is evolving. Yeah. And so what used to be vice is no right. longer. Right. You know? And I think that's where you, I think you come into play in such an interesting way, because it's like, do, do you feel a weight of that responsibility of being all the others that we've spoken about? Yeah, I feel a responsibility, but it goes back to what you and I talked about earlier about, I think I have more tools in my shed or toolbox to use than someone who doesn't have to kind of confront all of those things. You know, I do this weird exercise often and it's usually like really late night when I'm with friends. I'm like, what, what would you be? If you could choose any race, what would you be? Would you be a man or a woman? Would you be? Right, right. You kind of arrive back or I do, I arrive back at being a black woman and being an African woman. As much as I know that I'm like on the bottom of the rung for everything, um, including apparently next to Chinese men for um, social dating apps. Yeah, I heard that yeah, my sister <laughs> Tragic, <that> tragic. <laughs> yeah, so okay, fine. It's not sought after, but it's, I find it to be a really powerful identity and I wouldn't switch it for anything else, but it's a very heavy burden. I think I look much older than my mom did at my age. And it's because I see what I see what people who I consider to be doing real work on the ground and making mm. real sacrifices mm. to shift perceptions and organize. And they do so much and I'm so impressed by them and so inspired by them. And I do it from the comforts of like a production studio mm. or, you know, a boardroom. And so I've I, I know, but I, I really got I will share. I will say that the front line is there and the job of a great storyteller is to be a bridge for that. So if you don't open that lane, yeah, then that front line, it, it's echo chamber and Agreed. it's, and it's really tough. So like, I would never kind of discount that role. I think that it's, it's one, it's valid. It's super important. And I think that, you know, when I think about my daughter is going to be 13 this year. I want her to know who you are and what you're doing so she can point at it. Point at her mom, point at her friends, point at different people. Be like, okay, you know? I think That's that- amazing. To have examples and pillars of people out there was really uh, something I didn't have. And mm. so that's why I very much appreciated the pillars and strong foundation I had at home from both my parents. And going out into the space and saying, okay, there's always a safety net. There's a community. There's something built in so you can actually mess up and, <laughs> and come back home and have somewhere to like sleep. Right. So I think that ended up creating this kind of fearlessness. Um, but really it would have been incredible to have women who weren't generations ahead of me because they right. were pioneers, mm. but someone I could just grab yeah. coffee with and all of that. So I hope in the future that I could, but I'm really invested in, in young people. And, and like we said, I'm from Chicago and I think a generation of some really broken youth are coming out of Chicago yeah. and that is a residual effect for decades to come. Yeah. The idea that dropping bodies is like saying you picked up Harold's chicken and yeah. all they're asking for is time with people. They're asking for a place to express, a place to get discipline, 
a place to structure. read. Yeah, yeah, their schools are shutting down. The places that have, do have schools, the infrastructure is disgusting. So it's an entire population that is lost because of how abandoned they've been. And so my goal is not to kind of perpetuate a, a stereotype or trope that's being broadcast from a podium in the West Wing for just choosing like the animals that are in Chicago. But Chicago is one of the most creative cities, most compelling cities, crossroads of, of business. And, you know, and so the goal is for anyone like that living in other places is to see examples of themselves that are alternative to what they're shown every day. So that's the goal. I love it. Well, I, I believe that goal will be achieved. My last question I have to ask you, so what's the best thing you learned from Prince? That I can make it happen. Real deal. Real deal. Yeah. And that is so, so many spokes to that, but yeah, that I can make it happen. That self-love, self-confidence, that'll get you a long way as, a, as we've seen it. I wish you continued success and I'm looking forward to your, thank your you. talk tonight. Thank you. And thanks for spending a bit of time with us. Of course, and thanks for you know, making the time and I'm really happy about what you guys are doing here. It's critical. Trying critical. Best. And however I can help by nagging people somewhere else, I'm happy to do it. We'll be on you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks. much. Appreciate it. That was the incredibly talented Amel Monsoor, the executive creative director at Vice. Now we can't bring up Prince without playing a joint. I mean, my sister and many others are crucifying me. So let's take it back to 1987. This one is off the album Sign of the Times. His gender-bending classic, If I Was Your Girlfriend. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. If I was your girlfriend, would you remember? You tell me all the things you forgot when I was your man. Hey, hey, when I was your man. If I was your best friend. Would you let me take care of you and do all the things that only a best friend can? Only best friends Sometime. Well, then, can we just hang out? I mean, can we go to a movie? Come on. 
Miss Me is a multi-talented artist, also known as the Artful Vandal. Hailing from Montreal, her wheat pastings have been seen in cities across North America and around the world. Her work is focused on challenging archaic notions of sexuality and amplifying marginalized voices. Her most iconic piece is a semi-nude self-portrait where she dons her signature Mickey Mouse ears, rounded up by strategically placed sharks and unicorns. To see it is to believe it and understand it. It's powerful, powerful work. Branching out from her artistic practice, Miss Me has been a featured speaker at events including TEDx, spotlighted by major media outlets, conducts workshops and programs for youth, and is beginning to dabble in filmmaking. Miss Me was at Deus for her first ever Toronto show, which was held in our Toronto gallery. So tell us your name and where you're from and what you do. I'm Miss Me. I'm an artful vandal and I'm from planet Earth. An artful vandal. Where does that come from? What does that mean? Uh, it's almost like a little joke with myself because I didn't really know how to define what I do because I didn't really care to define what I did. I just did what I did. Um, but at some point you have to explain even to yourself. Um, and what I do in many places is considered vandalism, which to me is hilarious because it has such a hardcore connotation. And I feel that I'm just spreading conversations and very much in a in a positive way even if it's maybe a little harsh or, or, or raw sometimes so the contrast with the word vandalism to me is just funny so and I I do art very much so I consider art to be an intention and my intention is artistic so I call it art for vandalism because it makes me laugh and it's for me just a very simple way to explain what I do and initially that artful vandalism took shape and form in what way where did you first start how did you first start sharing your your work like five six years ago i quit my job cold turkey um what, what were you doing i was a senior art director in a very successful and cool advertising company but i mean i i, I didn't leave mad or upset mm. at people i just i just couldn't take that bullshit anymore of the entire world and that society and, and feeding into it and using my creativity and my energy that I felt was very precious to be used for people who didn't appreciate it or for things that I didn't believe in. Right. Until I just couldn't lie to myself anymore. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I was fed up to a point that I was like, that's it, I'm quitting. And nobody really understood. They're like, what do you mean? You're, and I'm like, I'm done. That's it. I don't care how much money all of a sudden you have to give me. I don't care how many vacation I can take. I, I don't care. Like, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And I just kind of left with no plan. It was my soul that was just like suffocating, 
it was just not working anymore. And it just happened. Like I had this list of things that I, I wrote just to make sure that I wouldn't wake up in a panic and be like, what do I do? Like you wrote this list. Of things I wanted left, to do. When you left your job. Exactly. Okay. And on the very bottom was, you know, draw again. And that's the first thing I did. And that's the only thing I did. But I did it like a maniac. I did it in the streets. I did it outside. I went outside on my own. It was just, I always call it like emotional vomit. It's like, it's like I got so sick. It was like, blah. It just had to come out in the rawest way. You have a very distinct form of the way you, you present images and iconography. You pull on a lot of different things from mashing up saints with artists, with the female form. Like, how long it takes you to start to find what you wanted to actually share? Was it immediate? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The fact that I, I worked in, in advertising probably helped. You know, like, I had to do visual communication. So it's it's kind of... That, in a way, it's just with no boundaries, no brief, nobody's opinion, and just, like, just raw feeling. It's, it's like they're visual metaphors, right? So it's like this plus this equals what I feel I want to say. And that was it. It's, there's really not that much thought in the process. It just kind of happened. Like, it was the freest thing I could possibly do from all of the boundaries and the things you're supposed to do and not do as, as a proper person, as an adult, and as a woman. Like, all these things that just, it just oppressed me. At some point, everything together, all these little things just came together in such a heavy way that I just kind of needed to break all of them <coughs> in the most massive way I could think. And that that is how... It came to me. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but to me, that was like, fuck it all. Like, fuck everything. The first um, series I did and I put in the streets were extremely sexual, but there were statements. They were like, female sexuality for female in a proud, owning, fun way, you know? And I was like, I did that and I'm like, I'm putting it everywhere in my city and fuck everything. You know, I feel like I'm just being louder and screaming louder. I know it seems a little selfish and immature, and maybe it is in a way, but it just makes me feel better. I don't. I, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't pick up on that. I don't think that people perceive it like that. I mean, and tell us about the vandal and your and your mask. Well, because it's a self portrait, right? But um, the reason why I do it is the obvious. Like ninety percent of my work is illegal, and even though some places it's not such a big deal, some places because I do it everywhere in the world can get you know a little more tricky. I still think it's silly because it's really not a big deal, but it can be because laws are different. Um, but mostly it's because it's not relevant. What I look like is not relevant to what I do at all. Like it just doesn't matter. Um, so I take it out of the conversation and. As a woman, I think it's even more important because what women look like, no matter what you do, will always matter or happen to be part of the conversation. Whether it's big part of it or small part of it or just a, people will have an opinion on it. And I'm not saying men, I'm saying people in general. And it bothers me. And I don't want people to have any opinion on what I look like. I don't want people to think I'm pretty or not pretty. I don't care. Till this day, you still have documentaries on what Cleopatra looked like. A woman that was so powerful and was so important, we have to know what she looked like because it is part of understanding her power. No, she was probably extremely charismatic and understood the power of being a female at that time and probably her sexuality because throughout history, women had to use their sexuality, not because that is the real power, because that was the only way we could access power. People, you, you know, when they say, oh, it's pussy power and that is the real power in the world, I'm like, no. 
The power was in men and the only way women could be taken seriously or come close enough to the power was to use that. Because if you were just like, yo, I'm this really smart lady and I know about government and I'm really good at politics, you'd be like, girl, calm down. you know, calm down or suck my dick. Like, mm. so anyway, so all, that, all this to say that I don't think it matters what I look like. Right. And I just like to take it out of the conversation and I think it works. I think it absolutely works. I mean, <laughs> I think each person unpacks it differently. Mm -hmm. What would you say? Like, what is your, what was your intention My intention, which is understood by a lot of people and by others not at all, which mm -hmm. is fine, is it's me naked and it's just, I'm here, I'm naked, what? Like literally, what? Basically, it's just a way of saying I'm sick and tired of having to be held responsible for other people's reaction towards me. I always say, you know, to be born with a woman's body is to bear the unsolicited burden of society's unresolved attitude towards sex. And we're taught to be held responsible for how other people react towards us. And instead of being like, that's not for us to deal with, it's you, you know, learn how to deal with yourself. And no, it always falls upon the women to deal with it and to change, to behave differently, to um, dress differently, to... And I'm not saying men versus women. It's, it's very much of a patriarchal mentality that is within men and women, both. Right. And so that's why a lot of women are, are, are you know, slut shamming and all that stuff you want to call, but because it's within them. It's a huge conversation we still need to have with ourselves, you know, with it, even within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, spending a bit of time with you, I, one of the things I really picked up on that I admire is without at all imposing it, you made me think about feminism in a different way. And I wanted to ask you, what, is, what does that mean to you to be a feminist? I mean, equal rights for women. Through sexuality, women, we are still trapped. We're still oppressed with like our the vision of sexuality that we were like taught and like how our sexuality is linked to shame and how this this fucked up idea of virginity that is an invention there's no such thing as virginity because um why is it that just women have it and not men does it mean mm -hmm. that lesbians are eternal virgins um when you supposedly lose your virginity what do you lose what is it you lose what is it that makes you less you you can have sexual relationship and still have an amen some women don't have an amen um and what is it this precious thing you have to keep and give it to someone and then all of a sudden you're less of yourself what the hell does that mean mm. that is bullshit mm. those little things like what i have here like you know I didn't come from your rib. You came from a vagina. Just this little phrase, this whole idea that women came from a man's rib. Even though if you read this, the, the, the Bible, the first man was not a man like a, a male. Right. It was a human with both characteristics. And when the female was created, the man was created at the same time. Yep. The women didn't come from the man. Like men and women came from this one being. Source. But that is not really how we're taught, right? But no, no, not at all. <laughs> but it brings up something that as a man, like with a really open mind I ask like what do you think men's role in feminism is the, the thing is not to take the, the king's place Agreed. the idea is a democracy right Agreed. first of all like feminism there's many different types of feminism yep. there's many different ways of expressing it and I personally don't agree with all of them of course right? and, and, and I just do it my way but I think just like any activism, just because someone is trying to reach equal rights and find their dignity and their strength and their power again doesn't mean it's taking anything away from you. It's like fire. It's not like if you take half of my glass of water, then I have less. It's like fire. You take my fire and you can keep just as much fire. And it's like same thing like, you know, like the, the, the any like the Black Lives Matter or, or these things. I, I, 
I'm not black, but I don't feel threatened by it at all. I find it empowering. I find it beautiful. And I think men should see it that way because a woman that's more empowered and more whole and less ashamed and is going to be the most beautiful partner in your life. And, and in life, I don't mean necessarily in a couple's way, but I mean, we're, we're half of humanity. We need to live together. And if, if the other half, as Malala says, if like, you know, half of humanity is just behind how, you know, that's just, we're not going anywhere. We have this idea of like a female, like it's the definition of femininity and this definition of masculinity. And instead of it being a reflection of what men are and female are, which is super complex and the spectrum is huge. It's like we have to fit in there. And mm. most of us don't really fit. Some right. people do, which is great, but some, most of us don't. Yeah. It won't make you less of a man if you are taking care of kids. It won't make you less of a man if you allow and learn how to cry and to let out certain emotion in, in that kind of way instead of letting it out through anger and violence, which is somehow more expected and accepted in our society when it comes to men, but it's more destructive. But it's not accepted if it's women. It's like it's like this weird thing where some emotions and expressions are just reserved for one sex, and that's that's silly because that is not how most of us are. But yeah, so it's like as women can redefine themselves, it's a beautiful place for men to redefine themselves in a good, healthy way. And it's also important, I think, for women to support men in that way because I think it's scary for men if they allow themselves to do these things that they're always taught was not masculine and not right. To be able to see a man that's like showing sensitivity or being vulnerable or crying and, you know, being there for them and still say, you know, I, I feel you're very much of a man and I find you very masculine when you do that. You know, it's like redefining it also through our eyes. Like any activism, it's like always about pinpointing one thing that's not okay, but at the end of the day, it's for humanity in general. Again, the Black Lives Matter. It is my problem. It's very much my problem. It's not exactly my situation. Like I don't live it from the inside every day, but it is my situation because humanity is my problem. Incredible words to live by. We should all be so uh, courageous. Miss me, Miss Artful Vandal. It's been fantastic to have you in this space and you know, you're welcome back here anytime. You're welcome. My pleasure. So here's what happened. So let me tell you about that time when... So what had happened was... I have a story to tell. So here's what happened. Who y'all talking to, man? And now it's time for Here's What Happened with Saul Guy on 1196. So what had happened... In thinking about listening, I have an interesting story to share. Lately, I've been referring to myself as the richest man in the world. I say it because I believe it. There's no value or no money that could make up for what I've received in this world by giving, be that my children, my traveling, the people I've met along the way. And one of the extraordinary people I've met along the way is a, a young man by the name of Puma Singona. Puma's from Peru. When he was five years old, he was struck by lightning, which is wild. Um, he survived, and his grandfather, who's an elder and a, a shaman in the family, a true medicine man, recognized this as a sign, and he quickly scooped him up and basically told him he'd been waiting for him and trained him in the ancient ways of the Quechua and the Inca. So he spent the next 20 years of his life living this duality between tradition and the present, spending months and years in the mountains learning about the ancient ways and gaining knowledge from his grandfather through these ancient oral traditions. So he would go on to become a medicine man in his own right, and a midwife and a cultural leader, a father, a husband. Um, the one lesson he got that I found extraordinary as it relates to what we're talking about here today was 
he had the opportunity when he was 12 years old to go to school for the first time, to traditional school. He was very excited at 12 years old and he was preparing for his, uh, his first time that he would get to interact with other students and children of his age. And the morning of his first day of school, his grandfather pulled him aside and he said to him, Puma, you only have one lesson for the entire year while you go to school. And Puma was excited to know what this lesson would be. And he was about to go off and he said, the lesson for the year is simple. Don't talk. You just have to listen. So imagine that. You're 12 years old experiencing social interaction for the first time and you spend a year observing The thing to understand is he did it. He spent a year without talking. He learned to be a better communicator and he never went back to traditional school, but he's one of the most, if not the most well-educated man I know. I tend to think that that experience is hard to shape the value of that. Um, That may be the most extreme case that I've, I've come across, but I hope that In listening to that story, perhaps I'd become a better listener. 1196 is produced by Saul Guy, Reza Daya, Chris Penrose, and Megan Eliza. Follow us at Deus Creates.